We are going to the American Southwest, to Santa Fe, New Mexico, to visit the grave of a former veteran and newspaper man turned mystery writer. His novels are set among the Navajo people of the Southwest, and his books took the American detective story genre in new directions. His evocative tales made him a best-selling author. What Lies Beneath, Tony Hillerman. Hi, friends and Tapophiles. I'm your host, Lachelle. Thanks for joining me today. Also joining me today is my co-host and fellow Tapophile and Bibliophile, Randy. Yay! Hello, all. Hi, Randy. Hello. <laughs> I do love cemeteries, and I do love books. We have quite a bit of a collection, don't we? Yeah. And when we travel... That's also something that I often go and check out is libraries and bookstores as well as the cemeteries. So, yeah, love to visit bookstores and I have so many books. I just love books. Me too. I'm really excited to talk about and honor a really great author and person, Tony Hillerman. Yeah, I'm excited about this episode Tony Hillerman was definitely kind of a household name for us being in the Southwest and Brad and you always read those books and I think I read a few of them even but yeah definitely was um, a common kind of author in our house. And even Grandpa Scott he really wasn't much of a reader but in his older years, he started picking up Tony Hillerman, and he read all of those. He loved those books. So, shows what a great author he is. Yeah. So, I stayed in Santa Fe last weekend, and, of course, got some amazing New Mexican food. And Brad and I went to the Santa Fe National Cemetery. It's a military cemetery, so it's very much like some of the others that I've mentioned before here on the podcast. Yeah, so just kind of lots of very symmetrical kind of rows and rows and the simple white crosses or markers. So many soft rolling hills of grass and white standing markers in the older sections. And in the newer sections, they're starting to go to the flat flush on the ground types, which is where Mr. Hillerman is resting. As you know, I'm partial to the upright stones, and so I was a little sad that they're changing that, but I'm sure that they're a lot easier to care for in the cemeteries than the upright stones. Yeah, I can see that. Did you leave one of your your special little rocks? Have we talked about that project that you have started? I talked about it on social media, but I haven't mentioned it here on the podcast, and so I'll mention it here, but I've started leaving little painted stones. I like to 
paint and craft and so I made some little mandala rocks or just something decorative and I've been leaving them at the graves of people that I've stopped to see so yes and they say stones bones and shadows on the back and so if you see one of these in a cemetery that I've been to if you take a picture of you and the grave with the rock then I will send you some merch you just have to tag me in a social media and I'll send you something fun that's awesome I love it a little way to connect with people who go to the cemeteries and so you know what I put one down at Mr. Hillerman's grave and I took a few photos of his grave but then as I started looking around there was like nothing on anyone else's not a coin not a little rock anything and I just felt like they would just go and remove it oh okay so I decided to go ahead and not to leave it since it probably wouldn't get to stay there so if you go to Hillerman's grave and just go ahead, take the picture of you and post it and tag me. And I'll still send you some merch. It'll count. <laughs> yeah, that'll count. I guess maybe they try and keep the graves there very clean, like very clutter free or whatever. Right. There was a lot of rules. There weren't even like flowers or anything. Just a few. And there's very specific rules about the flowers and plants and things that you leave. Like there was a whole board about it. And it didn't say that you couldn't leave rocks, but I didn't see anything else. So I was like, all right, I'll just not. Gotcha. (laughs) So the website for the cemetery says Santa Fe National Cemetery is a national shrine, which serves as a reminder of the untold histories of the veterans who helped preserve our freedom. Our director, office personnel, caretakers, and specialists combine efforts towards learning, listening, and compassion to better the organization. At the Santa Fe National Cemetery, the flag of the United States is proudly flown. The grounds are well-kept and orderly rows of headstones and monuments that commemorate the lives and the services of those who, each in their own way, and according to their talents and abilities, contributed to the growth, development, and preservation of the nation. A grateful nation honors those who served it well. And as I'm in any one of these cemeteries, I always do feel so grateful for the service of these brave people. And your heart just really swells. And the sight of all of those white standing stones, as far as you can see, you just feel a lot at these national cemeteries. I say a lot of times that it just, like, to me, as you see all of those, it kind of represents, or you can kind of in your mind see a man in each of the different eras of uniforms standing there next to their grave. Yeah, it kind of almost represents or feels like seeing them all in rank, right? Like, all of the very uniform and orderly look to the cemetery, and it does. It has a different feel to it than a lot of the cemeteries we visit, And yeah, I definitely think there's some um, art potential for you there uh, depicting some of that feeling as well. I think that that would be really cool. I'm going to have to look into that. That would be fun. There were some really different stones there as well. There was even one of a sculpture with a soldier kind of leaning back against a tree stump that was really interesting. And there are the columbariums and some mausoleum areas as well. So there was a lot of different kinds of burials there. 
And then there was also some that had the husband's name on one side, and then it said, and his wife on the other. And so I need to look more into this, but I don't know if they're buried side by side or if they're cremains that are buried or just mentioning who his wife was, even though, you know, she's buried elsewhere. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But I thought that that was kind of cool. And hopefully, you know, she can be buried there next to her husband. Santa Fe National Cemetery is located there in the city limits of Santa Fe. It's, it's approximately one mile northwest of the main plaza that's there. And if you've been to Santa Fe, you know the plaza, um, the Palace of the Governors. So it's really close there. It's just a really fun place to visit. If you haven't been to Santa Fe yet, I really suggest going. I haven't actually been to Santa Fe. Oh, well, we'll have Which to go. Is funny because it's not really that far and I've been to all sorts of other places, but I haven't been to Santa Fe, so I'll have to... Make the drive up there sometime. Long weekend trip for you guys. Yeah. Well, 13 years before the Pilgrims settled in Plymouth Colony, the Spanish had established a small settlement in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Santa Fe would soon become the seat of power for the Spanish Empire north of the Rio Grande and the oldest capital city in North America. Santa Fe is the site of both the oldest public building in America, the Palace of the Governors, and the nation's oldest community celebration, the Santa Fe Fiesta, established in 1712 to commemorate the Spanish reconquest of New Mexico in summer 1692. Conquistador Don Pedro de Peralta and his men laid out the plan for Santa Fe at the base of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains. When Mexico gained its independence from Spain, Santa Fe became the capital of the province of New Mexico. With the Spanish defeat came an end to the policy of a closed empire. American trappers and traders journeyed into the region along the 1,000-mile Santa Fe Trail, beginning in Arrow Rock, Missouri. For a brief period in 1837, northern New Mexico farmers rebelled against Mexican rule, killing the provincial governor in what has been called the Chimayo Rebellion and occupying the capital. The insurrectionists were soon defeated and peace returned to Santa Fe for almost a decade. In 1846, at the outset of the Mexican-American War, President James K. Polk asked General Stephen Watts Kearney to muster an army and march a thousand miles into the Southwest to claim that region for the United States and organize territorial governments along the way. Kearney, faced with a Mexican administration weakened by years of occupation and political turmoil, was able to take Santa Fe without firing a shot. In quick succession, he won over the local leadership, assured a peaceful transition to a new civilian government, and implemented a new legal code for the territory before continuing on to Arizona and California. While there was little armed conflict in the territory of New Mexico during the Civil War, there were some engagements in the area of Santa Fe. Confederate General Henry H. Sibley raised and equipped a column to secure the secessionists' secessionist claims in the New Mexico and Arizona region. Undermanned, often commanded by secessionist sympathizers and largely abandoned, the U.S. installations in the region were initially unable to defend themselves. 
news of the Confederate advance into New Mexico quickly raised volunteers for the Colorado Territory who took up the march. In addition, a large California column was raised to help defend the city of Santa Fe. Toward the end of March 1862, Union Major John M. Shivington encountered a Confederate force southeast of the city where the Santa Fe Trail crossed the mountains. Several days of skirmishes culminated in a Battle of Glorieta Pass. Although the Confederates held their own, several hundred Union soldiers moved to the far end of the canyon and attacked the unprotected supply train. After bayoneting the pack animals and burning the wagons, the Union forces left Sibley's men little choice but to make the long trek back to Texas. The campaign not only ended Southern ambitions in the Southwest, but it also forced the Confederate abandonment of Fort Bliss outside El Paso, Texas. At the close of the Civil War, the federal government established a cemetery for the reinternment of Union soldiers who died during the brief military activity in the area. The ground initially chosen was located just west of Santa Fe and is currently part of Santa Fe National Cemetery. The Roman Catholic Diocese of Santa Fe, who owned the property, donated the land to the United States in 1870. Santa Fe's initial designation as a national cemetery was short-lived. In July 1876, the War Department decided that, to save expenses, its status should be downgraded to that of a post-cemetery. The superintendent was transferred to Mound City National Cemetery, Illinois, and the quartermaster was transferred to Fort Macy, a local post in Santa Fe. Nine years later, however, it was reestablished as a national cemetery. So what's the difference between a post cemetery and like a national or a regular cemetery? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> My guess is that it had to do with that being a post for a military post. And so it was just a military cemetery and not something that was a national, like a federal cemetery. A, a post cemetery is just, yeah, like a cemetery that's only open for veterans and um, typically is even like on the military post. A fort. Mm. Yeah, like the military fort or post. Okay, so that's pretty close to what I thought. Sometimes you guys ask me questions that I just didn't even think to find out the answer to. <laughs> well, it's, it just sounded weird, like it was downgraded to a post, like it was something different. But yeah, so there you go. All right, let's talk about a few of the monuments and memorials. There is a granite and bronze memorial to World War II glider pilots that was dedicated on Veterans Day, November 11th in 1994. And also a granite memorial to women who served in the Navy, which I love, was erected in November of 1995. The Roadrunner Unit No. 4 New Mexico Chapter sponsored the memorial. The China-Burma-India Veterans Memorial is a granite block memorial erected in 2002. It is dedicated to the memory of the men and women who fought in World War II. Then there's Fort Craig Post Cemetery Memorial, and it's dedicated to the men, women, and children who perished at Fort Craig, New Mexico, 
in the late 1800s. Soldiers that were stationed there conducted military campaigns against the Apaches and Navajos and during the Civil War engaged the Texas Army in the Battle of Valverde in February 1862. It was dedicated in July 2009. And then a granite and bronze memorial to Glorietta Pass Confederate dead was erected April 1993. And that's just what we were just talking about was that Battle of Glorietta Pass. Right. And Something else I found out that was subsequent to its second designation, the second time it was designated in 1892 as a national cemetery, Santa Fe National Cemetery was chosen as the final resting place for the mortal remains of many soldiers who had served and died in lonely outposts out in the southwestern frontier. So remains from the post cemeteries at Fort Apache and Fort Grant, Arizona, which is just over the mountain from where I grew up, so I totally know about Fort Grant, um, Fort Hatch and Fort Wingate in New Mexico, and Fort Duchesne, Utah, are reinterred in this cemetery. So they kind of brought those little tiny cemeteries in so that they could be part of this national cemetery. The cemetery is also the burial place of Oliver Lafarge, who won a Pulitzer Prize for Literature in 1930 for his book Laughing Boy, a story of an Indian youth caught between his tribe's traditional life and forces of modern society. He was the author of many books and articles concerning the American Indian and was a special friend and champion of the Navajo Indians in New Mexico and Arizona. Lafarge served as a lieutenant colonel with the Army Air Force during World War II, he died on August 2nd, 1963, and was interred in Section O, Site 300, on August 5th, 1963. And I thought that that was kind of cool, considering the story genre that Tony Hillerman wrote as well. Yeah. And being another literary guy, wanted to include him in there. Also, if you listen to our episode about the Code Talkers... There are at least three of them buried here in this national cemetery as well. Leo Kirk, a Navajo and native of Arizona, enlisted in the U.S. Marine Corps on December 7, 1943. Private Kirk was a Navajo code talker in the Pacific Theater during World War II. In November 2001, the Navajo code talkers were presented with the Congressional Silver Medal. He was killed in action in Okinawa, April 15, 1945. Then there's Ralph Morgan, who also is a Navajo native of New Mexico. He enlisted in the U.S. Marine Corps on October 3rd and 42, and he was also a Navajo co-talker, and he was killed in action in New Guinea on December 30, 1943. And then third, Sam Morgan, a Navajo and native of New Mexico, enlisted in the U.S. Marine Corps on May 28, 1943. He was killed in action on Iwo Jima, February 20, 1945. And all three were presented with the Congressional Silver Medal, but all was posthumous since they had all been killed in battle. Wow, so a lot of history there and kind of a new area of the country for us too. I mean, 
Southwest is kind of our thing, but I don't think we've done anything in New Mexico yet. We hadn't, so I thought, you know what? This is the perfect time. We need a new state. Now we're getting into New Mexico. Yeah. And I've actually got a few more episodes planned that really have some more great stuff from there. So awesome. Anyway, love the history of the area. It's really interesting. A lot of different kinds of people. This is in that era of trying to figure it all out right and people just still battling each other for land and territories and so there's a lot of crazy history right all right let's get into our author and our man of the hour so to speak tony hillerman yeah tell me about tony well tony hillerman was born in sacred heart oklahoma to August Alfred and Lucy Grove Hillerman, who were farmers and shopkeepers. And he was the youngest of their three children, and he was the second boy. His paternal grandparents had been born in Germany, and his maternal grandparents were born in England. And this town that they lived in, Sacred Heart, was in the Oklahoma Dust Bowl. And the family circumstances were so lean and mean that Mr. Hillerman would later joke that the Jodes were the ones who had enough money to move to California. (laughs) Oh, jeez. Which, if you guys didn't get the, you know, privilege of doing, like, um, you know, honors English in high school, that is the main family in the book The Grapes of Wrath. So the example of the poorest of the poor really exactly who was affected by this dust bowl yes and so real poor he grew up in Potawatomi County Oklahoma attending elementary and high school with Potawatomi children he said he owed much of his later stories the veracity of his stories to these friendships He said, growing up Indian, Hillerman said of his childhood, you did not have an us and them. In Sacred Heart, being a storyteller was a good thing to be, he said of his country village, which was 35 miles from the nearest library. Wow. So after attending Oklahoma A&M College, Mr. Hillerman enlisted in the army in World War II. He served as a mortarman in the 103rd Infantry Division in the European Theater. During two years of combat in Europe, he said, his company of 212 riflemen shrank to eight as its members fought their way through France. Wow. It's just... Can you imagine? So much loss. They lost 204 men. In 1945, in a raid behind German lines, he stepped on a mine, and his left leg was shattered, and he was severely burned. He never regained full vision in his left eye. Wow, and that was a long recovery process for him. I just didn't realize he was a veteran at all. I just always knew him as, you know, an author. Right. I know, I didn't know much about his personal life. But he really lived through some of the toughest times this country has ever seen. I mean, Oklahoma Dust Bowl to World War II. To being severely wounded. 
And then having to come back and start alive. Yeah. Start alive, be a normal dad and husband and have a job. And yeah, I just, man, my hat is off to any veteran who has done these things. He returned from Europe in 1945 with a silver star, a bronze star, and a purple heart, and enrolled at the University of Oklahoma, where he met and married his love, Marie Unzer. And he took up journalism at this time. He then went on to find jobs as a crime reporter for the Borger Herald News in the Texas Panhandle in Texas, where he became acquainted with the sheriff of Hutchinson County. And this was important because the man later would become kind of the pattern of the main character in his novels. Right, you could kind of see how he started putting together his right. style, like his influences from his experience. Yes, lived among indigenous people, war, and then now crime writing. And kind of that mystery aspect, I'm sure, like exactly. the detective part. Right. He was next a city editor of the Morning Press Constitution in Lawton, Oklahoma, was a political reporter in Oklahoma City, bureau manager in Santa Fe, New Mexico for United Press International, and executive editor of the Santa Fe New Mexican. During this time, Tony and Marie had one biological child and adopted five more children. But Tony began to feel restless. He had put in 17 years as a newspaper man and wanted to do something else. So with his wife's support, he quit the New Mexican and took his family to Albuquerque, where he enrolled at the University of New Mexico. So went back to school once again. And he earned his master's degree in 1966, joined the journalism faculty, and later became chairman of the department. Fascinated with Native American culture, as we've discussed, he also became something of an authority on the Southwest. Yeah, and I love, he seemed to be one of those people that, you know, it was never too late to try something different or new. Always learning. Yes, I love it. In the late 1960s, he said he began to practice writing by working on a mystery, drawing on an early encounter he had with a group of Navajos on horseback and in face paint and feathers in Crown Point, New Mexico. They had been holding a Navajo enemy way ceremony for a soldier, a curing ritual that exercises all traces of the enemy from those returning from battle. Mr. Hillerman had himself just returned from the war after a long convalescence. So he really probably was interested in this and wished he had had the same thing, you know, when he came back from the war. Right. He was so moved by the ceremony and just inspired by this rugged landscape that is there. And he was just resolved to live there. And the experience became the basis for his first novel that's called The Blessing Way that he wrote in 1970. He spent three years writing the novel and sent the manuscript to Joan Kahn, a respected mystery editor at Harper and Row, now HarperCollins. She published it after he complied with her suggestion that he expand the role of the secondary character, the Navajo policeman Joe Leaphorn. 
So he then departed from Indian themes for his second novel, The Fly on the Wall, 1971. It was a political story of big city corruption, but he was already yearning to get back to the country where all his other novels are set. The vast tribal lands that straddle Northeast Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, and Colorado. And we can really picture all of these areas living so close to them ourselves and my husband Brad he pretty much loves that area of the country more than anywhere else for some reason he has that same love for the people and for their country and for just that landscape he just loves it it just does that same thing as spires and just as we're driving through on our last trip that we took he just was like look at this and look at this oh this place is so amazing I love it so much we all have like those places that kind of speak to our souls you know and definitely traveling is kind of what that's about helps you find those places yeah definitely everyone just has those places that that speak to them and feel connected to um, even if they can't quite explain why they feel that connection but yeah that's definitely his Tony Hillerman's you can tell that it's just like he loves the southwest he did and he would go to these places and while he was there he would collect sensory impressions and I just love this and I could just see us doing kind of the same thing, like just sitting somewhere. So poetic too. Yes, I love that. Yeah, collect sensory impressions. And what a neat experiment this would be is just to go somewhere and just sit, whether you're vacationing or even just outside in your yard and write down all those sensory impressions. I've done this a few times where you like what do I see what do I feel what do I hear what can I touch you know what I'm saying just what do I smell all of the senses like what do you take in so he wrote quote the way the wind sounds down there the nature of echoes the smell of sage and wet sand how the sky looks atop a tunnel of stone the booming thunder bouncing from one cliff to another so poetic that's so poetic and cool and I, I do love that idea it gives you a sense of being in the place that's a little deeper than just what it looks like and a little deeper than even just looking at a picture you know it's like the experience of being in that place and I love authors that can take you there literally take you from where you're at and place you in another place because you can smell the sage and you can feel the breeze and you can you know, you can just see yes. that big cloud above the monument. He also wrote, with intimate knowledge of the Navajo, Hopi, and Zuni tribes, by growing up with people very much like them, and he said, I recognized kindred spirits in the Navajo, he wrote in an autobiographical essay in 1986. Country boys, folks among whom I felt at ease. He also said in his research that he would just talk to everyone on the reservation. He said, I cross-examine my Navajo friends and shamelessly hang around trading posts, police substations, rodeos, rug auctions, and sheep dippings, unquote. <laughs> 
He's just trying to get as much information and firsthand experience as he can. And when you read one of his novels, you feel you feel that and you understand that he understands this place and he understands these people. He isn't just like a complete outsider writing about something he knows nothing about. And I guess that's part of how he did. He had the friends and he just was he was there and he really dug into that. Immersed himself. Immersed, he himself. immersed himself in I it. I love yes. that. Yeah. His third book, Dance Hall of the Dead, won the 1974 Edgar Allan Poe Award for Best Mystery Novel given by the Mystery Writers of America. Hillerman's writing is noted for the cultural details he provides about his subjects. Hopi, Zuni, European Americans, federal agents, and especially Navajo tribal police. His works in nonfiction and in fiction reflect that he has that appreciation of the natural wonders of the American Southwest and that appreciation of its people and especially the Navajo people. And so all of these mystery novels are set in the Four Corners area. And the Four Corners, if you haven't ever heard of the Four Corners, four states meet together in one little corner area and it's New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado, and Utah. And in that area is a lot of Navajo land. It's a really neat area. Um, even if you don't like go to the, there's actually a little plaque where you can stand like in all four states. That's like the touristy thing to do. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's funny though. Yeah, it is pretty funny. It's kind of fun. But that area is just so neat. I mean, that's like right where like Monument Valley is. That's really famous. Um, mm-hmm. Ship Rock, so all these really gorgeous uh, buttes and rock formations. And we drove through there a couple of times last summer. Um, we drove up to Yellowstone and drove through all that land and just really neat. It really is awe-inspiring. Yes. And you can see a lot of native indigenous people ruins that are just I mean they're like from the 1100s right so when we talk about the history of America like we're all excited because we can find gravestones that are from you know the 1700s but in the southwest and even like we said in Santa Fe there's like the oldest church in America is there you get some of the Spanish you know, the conquistadors and stuff, you get some of their buildings. But when you look at Native, Native American culture, that's where we have history here. That's old. It's different than European history. Yeah, because this is the indigenous people that lived here since the beginning of time. But it's still, it's still our history, you know, it's still the history of this land. And that's where you can really get those old uh, dwellings and and kind of connections to the people that lived here. Right. We really appreciate that. And again, like part of that in our family is, again, from Brad and his love of that. That's, you know, we did a lot of that kind of, of thing and have a lot of good friends. Oh, yeah. We would incorporate that, yeah, into a lot of our family trips. Like, oh, we have to stop and get out and see 
these ruins. We, you know, we need to go to this national monument. I'm going to like Walnut Canyon National Monument, even just outside of Flagstaff. Um, you know, places like that were pretty, pretty common for us to go to, for sure. So the protagonists in his mystery novels are Joe Leaphorn and Jim Chi of the Navajo Tribal Police. And Lieutenant Leaphorn was in the first novel, The Blessing Way, And then in the fourth novel is introduced Jim Chi. And then they begin to work together in the seventh novel, Skinwalkers, which is kind of considered to be his breakout novel. And this was like a distinct increase in his cells were when these two police officers got together and worked together. And part of that is because the characters really were different from each other and yet they worked together to solve these crimes and so the characters um, so the first character Jim Chi he is one of the tribal police detectives and unlike his superior Joe Leaphorn he's kind of the legendary Lieutenant Leaphorn he's really famous there But Chi is a real staunch believer in the traditional Navajo culture. And he's even studied to be a traditional healer at the same time that he is a police officer. And Jim Chi is young, he's idealistic, and he is seeking kind of more of a spiritual connection to the Navajo tradition. And so over several books, he's studying to become a singing medicine man. And this ambition really creates friction between his religious faith and these secular rules of criminal justice that he is sworn to uphold. So Joe Leaphorn is a tough, good cop, but not really steeped in the tradition of his people. Leaphorn is gruff, grizzled, a bit cynical, has a very logical mind and a passion for order that reflects his upbringing in the Navajo way. His code of behavior is dictated by a belief in the harmonious patterns of life that link man to the natural world. But he is not a religious fundamentalist. He is kind of a skeptic who holds a master's degree in anthropology. So he like went to university. He's very um, academic. Analytical and academic and, you know, just smart. And he's not caught up with some of the more spiritual traditions of his people. And so you have this balance between these two really different angles. And so in the book Skinwalkers, it's a novel that really allows for that interplay between these two different representatives of this Navajo culture. And so then each subsequent story that they work on it really challenges either one or the other officer with a crime that seems to be so entangled in the maybe the spirit world but also rooted in the reservation life that Mr. Hillerman knew so well. So these detectives they kind of blend their different views of the world to help solve the case. I love that looking at the same problem through two different lenses right but really to solve the problem There's a little bit of each, (laughs) you know? Yeah, and it's really good. And you really love both of these men and you get, you know, into each of their stories. And 
you know, how they handle things sometimes is right one way and sometimes it's right the other way. So in the world of mystery fiction, Mr. Hillerman was that rare figure, a best-selling author who was adored by fans, admired by fellow authors, and respected by critics. So he kind of has the trifecta going for him. (laughs) Exactly. Everybody just loves Tony Hillerman. Everybody loves him. (laughs) Though the themes of the books were not overly political, he wrote with an avowed purpose to instill in his readers a respect for Native American culture. Exactly. His stories, they were, you know, filled with contemporary crime, but they also describe a people struggling to maintain ancient traditions in this modern world. So the books are instructive about these ancient tribal beliefs and customs. So it can really help enlighten us to what indigenous people believe and Navajos in particular. He said, quote, it's always troubled me that the American people are so ignorant of these rich Indian cultures. He once said to Publishers Weekly, I think it's important to show that aspects of ancient Indian ways are still very much alive and are highly germane even to our ways. And this is so true as having many friends that are Hopi and Navajo that this is very true of them and they may be different you know religions or have different religious practices but there still are those ancient ways that are still in their heart and their life and the way that they live and think yes and that those should be valued and respected you know and oftentimes they haven't been throughout history like how we talked about in the episode about the Navajo code talkers like they yes you know went to white schools that tried to take the Indian out of them and tried to rid them of their language and and yet here you come to World War II and they really saved the day by having their own language and so right it's it's a cool thing he wasn't the first mystery writer to set a story on Indian land or introduced Native American detectives to crime literature, but he gave this traditional genre hero a new dimension. In A Hillerman Mystery, violent crime disrupts the harmonious Navajo world. Everything is connected, Jim Chi reflects in the novel The Ghost Way. The wing of the corn beetle affects the direction of the wind, the way the sand drifts, the way the light reflects into the eye of man beholding his reality. All is part of totality, And in this totality, man finds his osro, his way of walking in harmony with beauty all around him, end quote. I just loved that quote. Each thing, everything around us affects everything else. And finding that way of harmony and beauty. Yeah. In Sacred Clowns that was written in 1993, it says, Terrible drought, crops dead, sheep's dying. Springs dried up, no water. The Hopi and the Christian, maybe the Muslim, they pray for rain. The Navajo has the proper ceremony done to restore himself to harmony with the drought. You see what I mean? The system is designed to recognize what's beyond human power to change, and then to change the human's attitude to be content with the inevitable. 
was not a Navajo concept, this idea of adjusting nature to human needs. The Navajo adjusted himself to remain in harmony with the universe. When nature withheld the rain, the Navajo sought the pattern of this phenomenon, as he sought the pattern of all things, to find its beauty and to live in harmony with it. Tony Hillerman in Listening Woman. The books are all just really good, and I've read quite a few of them, and I need to keep going. I haven't finished with all of them, and I get kind of sidetracked with all the books that I want to read, but my mom has read all of them several times, and she really loves all of them. Yes, I I mean, like I said, I think I've read one of his books, but I mean, it's been years, years ago. But this, I mean, it does inspires me to want to pick them up again. And, you know, we'll have a little bit of incentive doing that kind of with our book club here coming up too. If you guys have been kind of following along with what we're doing with Patreon, it's like we want to bring more of these extended stories to you. And this is definitely going to be one of them. So that's going to be exciting too, to dig in a little bit more. Yeah, and then exciting to just to kind of talk about this and be able to talk about this episode with some of the listeners. So we're really excited. So go to our Patreon account and sign up. We'd love to meet you there and interact with you some more. And have an excuse to read more books and talk about Exactly. Books. <laughs> we love it. Because <laughs> who doesn't like that? <laughs> we sure do around here. But yeah, I might have to come raid your library Hillerman. and yeah, see, see what I want to bring back and read. Exactly. While Hillerman repeatedly acknowledged his debt to an earlier series of mystery novels written by British-born Australian author Arthur W. Upfield and set among tribal Australian Aborigines in remote desert regions of tropical and subtropical Australia. The Upfield novels were first published in 1928 and featured a half-European, half-Aboriginal Australian hero, Detective Inspector Napoleon Boney Bonaparte. (laughs) Boney, that's cute. Uh, Boney worked with deep understanding of tribal traditions. The character was based on the achievements of an Aborigine known as Tracker Leon, whom Upfield had met during his years in the Australian bush. I think these sound like really good books too. Yeah, now I'm like, wait, we need to go back even further. Now we gotta read those. Yeah. And see where he was inspired from. Right, and so this was a big inspiration to him. And so I think that that's interesting as well to find out what inspires authors and who inspires them as well. Yeah, what some of your favorite authors are reading. Uh, Yeah huge like that's where they you know gained some of that experience as well hillerman discussed his debt to upfield in many interviews and in his introduction to the posthumous 1984 reprint of upfield's a royal abduction in the introduction he described the appeal of the descriptions in upfield's crime novels it was descriptions both of the harsh outback areas and of quote the people who somehow survived upon them quote that lured him Hillerman said, quote, when my own Jim Chi of the Navajo tribal police unravels a mystery because he understands the ways of his people, when he reads the signs in the sandy bottom of a reservation arroyo, he is walking in the tracks Boney made 50 years ago, unquote. I think that's really cool. It is cool. You know, that he says, like, he gives that credit, like, 
this is what helped inspire me. So I, anyway, just love that. He kind of paved the way. Like this character paved the way for me to you know, expand upon. He also mentioned Eric Ambler, Graham Greene, and Raymond Chandler as authors who influenced him as he wrote the Leaphorn and Chi novels. In 1991, he got the highest honor that the Mystery Writers of America give. It's called the Grandmaster Award. After he'd solidified the Navajo Tribal Police series with A Thief of Time, which is his own personal favorite of his novels, Talking God and Coyote Waits, his last book in the series, The Shapeshifter, was published by HarperCollins in 2006. So we had a long, you know, that is 36 years about of writing his books. He'd written 18 books in the Navajo series and his literary honors are for his Navajo books mainly. He also wrote some children's books and some nonfiction books, including a memoir that celebrates the Southwest, its beauty and its history called Hillerman Country with photographs by his brother, Barney. His books have been translated into eight languages, at least, among them Danish and even Japanese. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. Just such a long and like widespread reach that he had. So Hillerman is considered one of New Mexico's foremost novelists and had so many awards that we aren't even going to name them all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to get into all of them, but he's got a list. We would have to be here for a little longer than you guys would want. There's a few cool things that he has that we're going to mention. Yeah, so a, a few kind of the top ones. Uh, the Tony Hillerman Library was dedicated in Albuquerque in 2008. And the Tony Hillerman Middle School part of Volcano Vista High School opened in 2009. Who doesn't want a middle school named after them? <laughs> I, I can't decide if that's like an honor or not, just because middle school is kind of awful. But school, yeah. <laughs> like, I would, want, I would want the library, though. Library. I would definitely want the library yeah. named after me. Me too. Dance Hall of the Dead, published in 1973, earned Hillerman the Grand Prix de Literature, Policier in 1987, which I'm sure I didn't pronounce correctly because I do not pronounce French well. We don't know French, but... But it's a French a international effort. literary honor. Good job. <laughs> Whew. Hillerman was awarded an honorary doctorate of literature from the University of New Mexico in 1990. So cool. And he was awarded the Owen Wister Award in 2008 for outstanding contributions to the American West. Tony Hillerman passed away on October 26, 2008, in Albuquerque at the age of 83. The cause was pulmonary failure, his family said. His daughter, Ann Hillerman, said her father had survived two heart attacks and operations for prostate and bladder cancer, the Associated Press reported. Besides his daughter, Anne, Mr. Hillerman was survived by his wife, Marie, their five children, Dan, Tony Jr., Steve, Monica Atwell, and Janet Grado, and ten grandchildren. For all the recognition that he ever received, Mr. Hillerman once said, He was most gladdened by the status of the special friend of the Diné Award, 
that was conferred on him in 1987 by the Navajo Nation. He was also proud that his books were taught at reservation schools and colleges. Good reviews delight me when I get them, he said, but I am far more delighted by being voted the most popular author by the students at St. Catherine Indian School, and even more by middle-aged Navajos who tell me that reading my mysteries revived their children's interest in the Navajo way. Just really an inspiring person. I just, I loved reading more about him and writing this episode. Yeah, I really loved learning more about him. I mean, overall just seems very like wholesome. (laughs) You know, like just like a wholesome person that really worked hard and really wanted to share his passions with people. And I just think that's amazing he was able to do that. And he and his wife were married like 60 years. Oh, that's so amazing. How cute. It's just so sweet. Six children. And so I just love that. The other thing to note that is really cool is that his daughter, Ann Hillerman, has kind of picked up the storyline and has written several books continuing the oh, story. Oh, cool. Have you read any? I have not, but Grandma has. And she was telling me just today when I was telling her that we were talking about one of her favorite authors. She's like, you really need to keep reading like the Ann Hillerman books as well. She said she does a really great job. Like there's a little difference than, you know, her and her dad, but she's also really good. And it's just cool to, you know, have that story um, continue. And so she's also a great writer. And I hear that the publishers are the ones that really kind of talked her into doing it that's really cool like what a legacy to have the privilege to carry on you know yeah we love it thank you randy for being with us here today do we have some shout outs that we need to give for our new patreon members yeah so we do have some shout outs to do so if you've been following along on patreon we just launched we're super excited about it and we get to do shout outs as part of our new members that joined. So thank you first to Leanne, Woo-hoo! who is our first patron to join and has been a long-term follower and subscriber and listener. So thank you so much for being our first patron as well. She followed on Instagram um, right at the beginning has listened to all the episodes. So she's just a super great gal i love her and we appreciate her a lot and then we have our friend lisa lisa who also has been following for quite some time and always gives us the best shout outs on social media thank you so much for joining and being a patron we have our friend janine who is a tapophile and loves taking photos in cemeteries and doing her own wandering so thank you for being here thanks janine And we have my husband, Porter. He decided to be (laughs) a patron. Thanks, Porter. I'm just so glad that all of our husbands are super supportive. They support the cemetery crazy. They're super supportive with this and have gone with us to many cemeteries and held our camera bag and looked things up on Find a Grave and all the adventures. And yeah, if you haven't checked us out yet, follow us on Patreon consider maybe being a patron we're starting our book club that's launching here in may 
and it just ties in so well to bringing extra content, more discussion, and ties in so well with this episode about our author, Tony Hillerman. So I really look forward to bringing that content to you guys and I'm just so happy to work on it. So thank you. Look forward to connecting to more of you soon. And thanks, Randy, for all your work on Patreon. This is going to be so much fun. I wanted to end the episode with a quote by Tony Hillerman from his book, Skeleton Man. The just two things we know for certain, that we're born and in a little while we die. It's what we do in the time between that matters. That's what the one who made us thinks about when he decides what happens to us next. This was Stones, Bones, and Shadows. You can see photos and more information about the cemeteries we explore and find our sources at stonesbonesandshadowspodcast.com. Also, don't forget to check us out on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and even TikTok, where you can interact with us. As always, we love to hear from our listeners.